tuning in to episode 58 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultramarathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. So if you or anybody that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. And there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And uh, just want to point out people who are uh, helping supporting the program. That is uh, Bloom for Women, bloomforwomen.com. Bloom for Women is a betrayal trauma uh, support group, expert help programs, online programs, and an empathetic community are right there at bloomforwomen.com. To help women heal, strengthen, grow past the trauma of infidelity, uh, betrayal, whether it's betrayal from a spouse who may have a pornography or sex addiction, or even from the emotional betrayal of an affair, an emotional affair. Um, but please visit bloomforwomen.com and use the coupon code virtual couch, all one word. That'll give you one month of free access to their evidence-based programs and this community that is designed to help heal and recover from betrayal trauma. And then as per usual, this episode is also brought to you by the fine folks at Eli's Extracts. Eli's creates all-natural organic shaving cream. You can go to elis-extracts.com and use the coupon code virtualcouch, all one word again, for 25% off your entire order of their all-natural organic shave creams that are scented, scented wonderfully with essential oils. Today, I think I used um, one of my old favorites, Rangoon, uh, so my, my head shiny. And uh, smells wonderful today. And uh, I want to point point out, um, you know, I forget this stuff at times because I just want to get to the content. But face group book, you can, uh, face group, face group, face group book, Facebook group. Tony Overbay, a licensed marriage and family therapist. You can go in there and like, and uh, we'll post stuff about podcasts and some other articles, that sort of thing there. Uh, there's an Instagram feed that I really need to get more on top of. Um, virtual Couch is on Instagram. And you can email me, contact at TonyOverbay.com, or just go to TonyOverbay.com and stop by there. Sign up to learn more about upcoming programs. And uh, and before I get to the topic too, um, you know, go get help. Therapy works. I, I just, I've had... You know, I see a lot of clients every week. Love it. Love my job. It can get kind of heavy when you deal with some really um, sensitive topics. Uh, I work with a lot of couples and divorce is is a very heavy topic, but um, I'd rather us be talking about it than nobody talking about it. And uh, there's a lot of things that are surrounding um, anxiety, depression, and but boy, some great success stories, especially this week. People that are processing some EFT dialogues that are amazing. If you're new to the podcast, go look up a podcast on EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, especially for couples. I had somebody that I've been working with for quite a while share a conversation that he had with... Um, with his wife that just, you know, he said uh, a year ago when we started this journey, he, he he didn't even believe that the type of conversation that he was having existed or that the type of connection that he could have with his wife existed. And it was all about him learning how to uh, express empathy and really sit there and just listen, listen to his wife and turn off the fixing and judgment part of the brain and just create this safe environment. And again, I mean, it literally brought tears to my eyes in a session where he talked about um, that he's just never felt more connected with his spouse, with his emotions. Um, it, it's just an, it's an amazing thing and uh, just some really good things this week. So you deserve it. You deserve to, to um, live your most fulfilling, best authentic life. So let's say we're working on it. We're breaking the stigma behind therapy that it's something that, you know, only broken people go use or need. Everybody needs it. Everybody needs to be able to get out of their own head and uh, just just get things off their chest and kind of, 
and kind of just throw their ideas out there and and uh, with somebody who is not going to just judge them and, and fix them because that person is judging and fixing them based on their point of view. Um, a good therapist is going to kind of hear and, uh, and empathize, understand where you're coming from, um, what has kind of brought you to the situation in your life, and then hopefully they've got the training and tools to help you make sense of of what's going on and what you want to do with your life. So I, I do highly recommend that. And part of the whole reason, I say this all the time, that I wanted to have a podcast was uh, to, I wanted to help. I wanted to be able to kind of um, get some things out there that I see from my my chair and, and just hoping that it will help. But I also wanted to be super duper authentic and I wanted to be able to share this journey of a podcast and, and my own vulnerabilities and that sort of thing. So I wanted to put out there that I am so grateful for the feedback that I get. And I never would have uh, thought, you know, 50, I guess, what do we have? 58. So 57 episodes again with the first episode that I would get to this point where the response is, is kind of overwhelming. And I only mean that from the sense that I, I want your feedback and I want your questions and, and ideas. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I, and part of why I'm saying, Hey, go get help is I, I'm to the point now where I get emails every day, um, literally every day of people that, that want help. And, uh, and if I'm being very authentic and vulnerable, um, would like my help. And, uh, and so it's, you know, I can't get to all of those. And that is just a, that is a, a vulnerable feeling, very honored that people say, Hey, I heard your podcast and, and, you know, I think you're the one that can help my marriage or you're the one that can help this problem or, um, because they're hearing my voice and maybe my enthusiasm and my passion. And, uh, the problem is, um, you know, just only so much time in a day to be able to help or get back to people. But there are people in your area, wherever it is that can help. Now, with that said, again, please um, contact me if, uh, if I can be of help or with resources. I want to do that. And uh, but I, I can't promise I can get back to everybody. And that is the part that breaks my heart. Um, but, but go find help in your area. Just uh, and if you don't have the, the finances, Google low cost therapy in your area. There's a lot of good clinics and places like that that can help. And uh, check with your insurance. A lot of insurances will offer support for mental health as well. So today we're going to talk about OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. And a lot of the info that I'm going to share with you, especially at the top of this uh, podcast, is coming from the International OCD Foundation's website, which is iocdf.org. And I highly recommend that you, you check that out. There is an incredible amount of information up there. But I want to give a little bit of an overview on OCD and then talk about what is the, the best treatment there, or in my opinion. There's a, there's a book called Brain Lock that I'm going to get to that has, it's been around for, I think it's almost 20 years. And that really is the most evidence-based um, treatment that I am aware of, and it has withstood the test of time, and it is uh, it is some stuff that I use every day. I have uh, some OCD clients about every day in my practice, and I've worked with a lot of those, And but I, hopefully this will kind of give some help. So I want to start with, this is something that the uh, the International um, OCD Foundation on their website, they they have a brochure, and, uh, and I like this. I'm going to read a little bit of this. They, they said, imagine that your mind got stuck on a certain thought or image. And then this thought or image got replayed in your mind over and over and over again. And no matter what you did, this image is getting replayed over in your mind. And you don't want these thoughts. And so then it starts to kind of feel like an avalanche or it feels overwhelming. And now along with the thoughts comes this intense feelings of anxiety. And we know from previous podcasts, anxiety is your brain's warning system. So when you feel anxious, it feels like you are in danger and your brain's going to buy into that and your body's going to react. Anxiety is an emotion that tells you to respond or to react or protect yourself, to do something. That's the key, to do something. On the one hand, you might recognize that the fear doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem reasonable, yet it still feels very real or intense and true. 
And then you think, why would my brain lie? Um, why would I be experiencing feelings if they weren't true? Because it, my brain's telling me feelings don't lie. But unfortunately, if you have OCD, they do lie. If you have OCD, the warning system in your brain is not working correctly. Your brain's telling you that you're in danger when actually you're not. And when scientists compare pictures of the brains of groups of people with OCD, they can see that on the average, some of the areas of the brain are different compared to individuals who don't have OCD. And so those tortured with this disorder are desperately trying to get away from these paralyzing, uh, unending anxiety. So, So imagine that that's what's going on in your brain. So if you go to a therapist then, the therapist is going to look for three things. Basically, they're going to look for if the person has obsessions and they're going to look for if this person does compulsive behaviors. So again, there's this obsession that we that, that a person has and then that obsession it becomes so intense that the person wants to do a compulsive behavior to then relieve that anxiety of that obsession. The only problem is um, that obsession is typically going to come back. If you are giving in to those compulsive or those obsessions with these compulsive behaviors, then we we want relief, but then the obsession is going to come back. And the obsessions and compulsions end up taking a lot of time, a lot of, uh, I always say, burning a lot of mental calories, and they get in the way of uh, important activities that the person is involved in or values, including family or school or work or hobbies, career, all that kind of stuff that these obsessions and compulsions can get in the way of. So obsessions, let's talk about that a little bit. Obsessions, their thoughts, their images, their impulses that occur over and over again. And here's the key, that they feel out of the person's control and the person does not want to have these ideas. Now, I do think over time, a person, if they have never dealt with OCD, it does just become this pattern of behavior and they just kind of feel like, well, this is just who I am. But uh, but I believe that, you know, when kind of someone really steps back and analyzes these thoughts or images or impulses, um, that they're things that 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 rule their life, that they don't want to have these things. Um, part of, more of obsessions that a person might find them disturbing or unwanted. And, and the key is they usually know that they don't make sense and they come with uncomfortable feelings. They usually come with um, things like fear or disgust or doubt or a feeling that things have to be done in a way that's just right. There's the key that things have to be done in a way that's just Right. Um, I, you know, I have people that, that obsessively wash things or fold things or, you know, the things in their room have to be a certain way. A, a, a bed cover has to be put on an exact way. A towel has to be put in a certain place. And to them, over time, it's just like, no, this is the way. This has to happen this way. This is the only way that, um, that I can make sense of the world. That if, if anything else is done any other way, that it doesn't make sense. And so people take a lot of time, uh, these, these obsessions, they get in the way. They just, you know, they make, uh, they, they get in the way of important activities that the person maybe values or used to value of socializing, of getting out, of working, going to school, that sort of thing. And it's clear to note that obsessions aren't, I mean, it's normal to have occasional thoughts about, uh, getting sick or the safety of loved ones, that sort of thing. So then we've got those obsessions. The obsessions bring on this anxiety. If things aren't done a certain way, my life is going to be uncomfortable or have these irrational thoughts. So then here come the compulsions. The compulsions are the behaviors or thoughts that a person wants to do to neutralize or counteract, <clears throat> excuse me, counteract or make the obsessions go away. So, and people with OCD typically realize that this is, it's just a temporary solution, but without any knowledge of what else to do, they kind of rely on these compulsions. It's just this temporary escape. And these obsessions can can occur. I mean, and we're going to talk about this. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. But in so many ways, I mean, obsessions on, you know, um, opening one's mouth wide or blinking more or 
you know, these obsessions and it just feels like if I don't do this thing, if I don't, if I'm obsessing about, I got to stretch, you know, the corners of my mouth or I have to open my eyes or I have to blink hard or, you know, I have to do a certain thing. I'm doing it right now with my shoulders or my neck or, and if I don't do this thing, I'm obsessed with this. If I don't do the compulsion, then if I don't do the thing, then something is going to go wrong. Or I just get so anxious about not doing the thing, whatever this obsession is, um, that I just eventually have to just do the compulsion. And, and it just becomes very time consuming. So, uh, what compulsions are not, and it's important to note that not all repetitive behaviors are compulsions. Um, you know, and there's, we've talked about habit in the past, right? Your routine at bedtime, or if you're, you know, religious practices or learning new skills that involves doing activities over and over. Um, and they are a welcome part of a daily life. There's a difference between a routine. I have a morning exercise routine that I've been doing for 20 years. And if I do it, it feels, I feel great, but there are times when I don't do it. And there's a tiny bit of anxiety there, but I know that, uh, you know, I don't have this, some irrational thoughts or thoughts that, um, my life is going to end or something's going to happen to somebody else if I don't do this. So, I mean, behaviors, and this is again, according to the International OCD Foundation, behaviors depend on the context. So arranging, they, they say arranging and ordering DVDs for eight hours a day isn't a compulsion if the person works in a video store. I love that one because I worked in video stores in college and holy cow, I got tired of arranging. Um, man, I was so long ago, it wasn't DVDs, it was VHS cassettes. How about that one? Um, so let's talk a little bit more about just OCD. And uh, so we kind of went over a little bit of what common obsessions are. People get obsessed with everything from body fluids and germs, disease, um, household chemicals, impulse control, uh, fear of, of harming someone or themselves, fear, fear of violent or horrific images, of year, yelling out insults, of stealing things. Um, there's the perfectionism part of exactness or evenness, and, and we'll get into some of that too. Um, fear of losing things, forgetting things, locking things, um, fear of being responsible for things. There's the unwanted sexual thoughts. It's pretty common, and this is one of those where People just don't want to talk about this stuff, but it's that having um, kind of these uh, unwanted thoughts or sexual images or um, having, you know, thoughts about others that are, that are, you know, they view as immoral or irrational obsessions that these things, oh, and then there's the religious obsessions. I've talked about this on other podcasts, this concept of scrupulosity, which is OCD of religious thought, which is concerned with offending God or blasphemy or it's excessive concern with right and wrong, or am I doing enough? And again, I've explained this in previous podcasts, but where somebody gets up and they, they, you know, they're praying about what shirt choice to wear, because if they wear the right shirt, then they might run into somebody at the restaurant who will then ask them about their shirt, and then they can share a message about God. And so they feel like if, if I'm, if I blow this call, if I get the wrong shirt, and then nobody finds me and asks me about um, my shirt, then I can't talk about God, and then God's going to get mad at me. And, uh, and, you know, so that can just cause this anxiety and this just pressure. And, and so I deal a lot with that as well. And I'll probably talk about that a little bit more later. So, and other obsessions too, there's superstitious ideas, lucky and unlucky numbers and certain colors and, and that sort of thing. And again, it's okay to have a lucky number, but then, you know, if, if your lucky number is 13, um, which might be mine from the past, you know, do you, are, are you obsessing with it? Do you have to always have the number 13 on something or something will go wrong in your life or um, do you have to tap out 13 or count to 13? That's when we know that things can kind of get rough. So how common is OCD? 
Um, best estimates are about that about one in a hundred adults, or maybe between two and three million adults in the U.S., currently have OCD. And this is roughly the same number of people that live in the city of Houston, Texas. Not to say that everyone in Houston, Texas has OCD. There are, and I want, and I'll point that out too. That's you know, so one in a hundred or two to three million adults. I think that kind of shows how common the extreme OCD is or OCD that becomes debilitating. There are also at least one in 200 or about a half a million kids and teens that have OCD. And I thought it was interesting, the same number of kids who have diabetes. We hear a lot about juvenile diabetes, but not a lot about um, OCD that can be debilitating for kids. And so that means that four or five kids with OCD are likely to be enrolled in any average size elementary school. And in a medium to large high school, there could be 20 students struggling with the challenges caused by OCD. And this is really clinical OCD. Um, OCD affects men, women, children of all races and backgrounds equally. So OCD is no respecter of persons. At what age does OCD begin? It can start at any time from preschool to adulthood. And, and although OCD does occur at earlier ages, the International OCD Foundation says that there are generally two age ranges when OCD first appears. First one's usually around 10 to 12, and then the second one is in the late teens into early adulthood. And I thought this was interesting. Is OCD inherited? Research shows that OCD does run in families and that there is a genetic component likely in the role of the development of the disorder. So genes appear to be the only partly responsible for causing the disorder. And, and here's the hard part is nobody really knows what other factors might be involved. And it could even be an illness or an ordinary life stressor that might induce anxiety. And it might um, in, you know, trigger the activity of these genes associated with the symptoms of OCD. And, and I know, and I, the hard part was I'm, not, I'm probably not going to tell very many stories because a lot of the OCD stories, you know, yeah, you can talk about um, hand washing, gen generic hand washing. Some of the ones that illustrate this concept better of uh, the genesis of OCD are, are just very specific. Um, I'm thinking of one right now where, you know, it's hard to talk about, you know, to, to kind of give the specifics. I don't want to, to violate anyone's uh, confidentiality. But we'll take hand washing, for example, though. That is one where if you, that, that can be about germs. And so I, I can tell you, I've worked with many people that have uh, severe OCD around hand washing. And there really is a, you know, there's the thought that, hey, I don't like germs. And then there's also the, uh, the OCD that maybe started when someone learned that someone in their family had maybe had a serious illness and died. I mean, I've had a couple of those experiences and from a catching, you know, contracting a disease. And so then the person, especially if they're young and they're trying to process that and they don't process it really well, then they become obsessed with germs. And so at that point, then the OCD comes from this place of not wanting to um, catch a disease that uh, that they believe played into the role of maybe killing or a loved one that they had. So, uh, so, and again, experts think that OCD that begins in childhood is different than the OCD that begins in adults. So, for example, a recent review of twin studies has shown that genes play a larger role when OCD starts in childhood, um, 45 to 65%, compared to when it starts in adulthood, 27 to 40%. And is OCD a brain disorder? Research suggests that OCD involves problems in communication between the front part of the brain and the deeper structures. So, these brain structures use a chemical messenger called serotonin, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And serotonin is, uh, it, it's a messenger. It relays messages between the neurons. And the belief is that the serotonin is not quite able to do its job to deliver the messages. And maybe I'll get into it. Let me get into this right now. Um, and pardon the, we're going to kind of geek out a little bit here. So medication, there, there is medication that works with OCD. And it's uh, this class of drugs called SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. How about that one, huh? 
And so bear with me here. So a lot of researchers believe that um, in OCD, sufferers have this, this abnormality or an imbalance in this neurotransmitter, this brain chemical called serotonin. And so serotonin is the chemical in the brain that sends messages between the brain cells. And it's thought to be involved in regulating a lot of functions. So from anxiety to memory to sleep. And that's why these SSRIs are often used to treat OCD. The SSRIs, the medications. Although it's not really known, here's the, the funny part, it's not really known why the SSRI medications seem to help people, some people with OCD, because a lot of SSRIs are used for depression as well. But the brain is made up of just millions of these neurons, these interconnected brain cells, and messages travel along these cells kind of like electricity down a wire. But here's what happens when the message reaches the end of the neuron and this is, you know, if you've had any genetic classes or you maybe seen this picture, and I always used to think it looks like a, almost like a knee joint, but, uh, you know, where the cartilage would go, there's nothing there. Um, but so if you've seen those, so it's like uh, when a message reaches the end of the neuron, then it has to jump this gap. The gap's called a synapse um, to the next cell or group of cells. And so here it's achieved by this neuron, um, this serotonin, that's a, the neurons releasing tiny amounts of this neurotransmitter serotonin into this gap between the nerve cells. I hope I haven't lost everybody. <laughs> this stuff's fascinating though, right? So brain imaging studies have been used to show that the differences. So the, the, the brain of somebody with OCD and those without OCD, but the scientific community is kind of split over whether what researchers have found is, is a cause for OCD or if it's a result of having OCD. But so here's what happens. So the job of the nerve cell is to send messages back and forth. And this is where it kind of made sense to me. It's kind of like a, a telephone wire. But then the nerves aren't like this single string. They're made up of a lot of these interconnected cells. So they act more like a game of telephone, which is kind of funny. So where one person whispers a, a message to the next and then it's passed down to the end of the line one person at a time. And so instead of words, this message is passed by these chemicals, these neurotransmitters, especially this one called serotonin. And so, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop my geeking out on this stuff. But the key is that the medication can be effective. So the best treatment for people, for most people with OCD, should include um, one or more of the following things. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and an, an intervention with a therapist called exposure and response prevention. Um, hopefully a properly trained therapist and this medication component if if you're good with taking medication and then family support and education kind of knowing how to help or support somebody with OCD and most studies show that on average about 70% of patients with OCD will benefit from either the medicine or cognitive behavior therapy and patients who respond with medicine usually show a 40 to 60% reduction in OCD symptoms which is amazing I mean because these OCD symptoms can be debilitating so here's, here's some of the things I think are fascinating is sitting in the chair and talking to people with OCD is that, you know, I think a lot of people feel like, hey, we're all a little bit OCD at times. But the people who really have this uh, clinical OCD find that, you know, almost maddening because, uh, the you know, again, OCD, it's not a personality quirk or a character trait. Um, it's a real mental health condition. And so while a lot of people can have these obsessive and compulsive traits, the, the OCD that we're talking about, um, people who are diagnosed with OCD simply can't turn it off when they need to. And, and that's the point where research has shown that their brains are wired differently than the brains without people with OCD. But I don't want that to sound ominous or looming. It's important to have that data to work with. Um, another myth is that OCD is not a big deal, that people just need to relax and not worry about it so much. And so that's the part where, you know, if you are saying that to someone with, with clinical OCD, 
Um, that is something that they have been trying to do for a long time. And, but that, what, that, that can actually bring on a level of kind of even more worry and fear that can get so overwhelming that it takes away somebody's ability to function. Um, and there's a myth that people with OCD are kind of just weird or neurotic or crazy and that there's no hope for them. But with treatment, as we're talking about here, it is extremely helpful and people with OCD can go on to live very, very full lives. So let's talk about what the most effective treatment for OCD is. Um, if you're still with me at this point, and maybe you are someone who suffers with OCD, or you know somebody in your family that does, or you just want more information on it, this is where the book Brain Lock comes in. So Brain Lock is a book by um, Dr. Jeffrey M. Schwartz. It's been around for quite a while, and um, Dr. Schwartz has come up with these four steps. Now, this is that cognitive behavioral therapy part, but we're gonna we're gonna add some additional information here. So, there's four steps that uh, that work, and the first step is relabel. And we're going to use alliteration here. All of the steps have R's. So relabel. So the first thought is to recognize that this intrusive, obsessive thought or urge is the result of OCD. Now, what does that mean? Um, so let's go back to obsession. So an obsession is an intrusive, it's an unwelcome, distressing thought or mental image. And then the compulsion, the compulsion is the behavior that people with OCD perform in this attempt to exercise the fears and anxieties that are caused by their obsession. So the person with OCD um, usually recognizes that the urge to wash or check or touch things or repeat numbers is, you know, ridiculous at times. The book kind of uses these phrases, ridiculous or senseless. And the feeling, though, is so strong that the untrained mind that's the key. The untrained mind becomes overwhelmed, and then the person with OCD gives in and performs a compulsive behavior. But here's the problem. Unfortunately, performing that, that behavior sets off a vicious cycle. So it might bring momentary relief, but as more compulsive behaviors are performed, these obsessive thoughts and feelings become stronger, and they're more demanding. They're more tenacious. So in this step one of brain lock, this relabeling, the first thing that one does is your goal is to recognize when you have these thoughts or you want to the, to carry out these actions by learning to say, um, in my, I think my wife's tired of me, I'll say this at times just to, in any type of kind of an OCD-like behavior, that's not me, that's my OCD. So that's the first step. When you recognize, when you have awareness around an obsession and you want to perform that compulsion and it just seems overwhelming, the anxiety gets so high, first thing, have awareness, relabel, that's not me, that's my OCD. There's step one. Step two is to reattribute. So it's important to realize that the intensity, the, the intrusiveness of the thought or the urge is caused by OCD. That's the key. It's caused by OCD. That's why I laid out the groundwork of what OCD is before, that these structures of the brain, that they're, they are not perform, you know, they're not working properly. In the book Brain Lock, um, again, Dr. Schwartz says that, it, that this OCD is probably related to a biochemical imbalance in the brain. So we call the problem brain lock in the book because there's four key structures of the brain and they become locked together. So then the brain starts sending false messages. That was that part with the serotonin stuff that I was kind of geeking out about. That your the brain is not playing a really good game of telephone. It starts sending false messages that the person can't recognize as false. Because now go back to the beginning of the podcast because why would our brain lie to us, right? It's our brain. So this is like the brain getting stuck in gear and it can't shift to the next thought. So look at that. So you, you recognize this obsession. You identify it. You relabel it. It's not me. That's not me. It's my OCD. 
and then reattribute. Realize that that thought or urge is caused by OCD. It's this biochemical problem in the brain. It's the brain sending false messages that the person can't readily recognize as false. The brain gets stuck in gear and it can't shift to the next thought. So now we've got a lot of awareness around what's going on, right? We want to go wash our hands. We're like, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my OCD. And this OCD is being caused by my brain. My brain is locking. It's stuck in gear. Um, It's sending false messages. My brain is horrible at the game of telephone. And so there's some awareness now. Here comes the key. Refocus. So work around, this is step three, refocus. Work around the OCD thoughts by focusing your attention on something else at least for a few minutes. Do another behavior. This is where if you, again, we'll go back to the hand-washing example. Um, I have people that will tie a ribbon uh, around, uh, you know, the faucet or the door leading into the bathroom to just bring the awareness. If they don't already have it, it's like, wait a minute, there's that ribbon. I'm about to go wash my hands. Now, did I just, you know, do something that has left my hands incredibly dirty or I'm about to eat dinner or something like that? Then you bet. Um, might might not be a bad idea. But if I'm just doing it because I they just feel kind of icky or I just touch something that I think maybe somebody else touched, then that's one where to say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my OCD. Step one, right? Step two, reattribute. Okay, that my brain is kind of getting locked in gear. So then refocus. I am going to turn and do another behavior. So and then step four is to revalue. Do not take the OCD thought at face value because it's not significant in itself. So when you are applying these behavior therapy techniques, you can change the way that you respond to the thoughts and urges. And as we know is the way the brain works, and when in the podcast about habit change, you can physically change the way your brain works, which is amazing, right? And and if you look at the book Brain Lock, they have um, functional brain scan images showing before and afters of cognitive behavioral therapy with OCD. So it does help. There's scientific evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy alone actually causes chemical changes in the brains of people with OCD. So Schwartz explains in Brain Lock that by changing your behavior, you can actually change your brain chemistry and you can get relief from these symptoms of OCD. So the end result is that you have this increased self-control and you have uh, it's 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 um, increased self-command You um, and it results in higher self-esteem, feeling better about yourself. So here's where, I think we've waited this long, but I'm going to use the phrase mindfulness, mindful awareness. This is the ability to recognize that messages are false. So we've got the four steps. We've got the relabel. It's not me, it's my OCD. The re-attribute that this is caused by a biochemical imbalance in the brain, that my brain is horrible at playing the game of telephone and it's sending false messages that, that I can't realize, that I don't know in the moment that they are false. And so the brain is stuck in gear. Can't shift to the next thought. Refocus. That means doing another behavior and then revalue. Do not take the OCD thought at face value. It's not significant. Knowing that behavioral techniques can change the, literally change the structure of your brain, um, then that, that will give us hope. Now, the mindful awareness part, recognizing that the messages are false. There's a quote from the book that says, it's not how you feel, but what you do that counts. Are you acting upon that obsession? Are you doing the compulsion? When you do the right things, then the feelings tend to improve as a matter of course. And more on that concept of mindfulness. I know I talk about it at almost every podcast, every chance I can get. 
But when you are aware, when you're aware of these obsessions and you can kind of note that you want to act out on this compulsion and you're able to not because of using these techniques and brain lock, there's a lot of power there. And this is where I go back to that concept of the emotional baseline, that when people feel debilitated by OCD, I I believe that baseline is extremely low. And as they build these tools, as they use these um, four steps of brain lock to start to feel some control in their lives, that raises that emotional baseline. And as that baseline is raised, um, there's a lot more awareness and, and just being able to kind of just stop then in that thought of wanting to act out on this obsession. And then once you are able to not act out on that and realize that even that obsession is just a thought. And as the practice of mindfulness teaches, a thought is just a thought. It's just a thought. You got plenty more coming right after it. So let's not act out on that one. Um, so I would highly recommend if you are struggling with OCD, know someone that is or just kind of interested in treatment for that. Uh, get the book Brain Lock by uh, Schwartz, and it is just an amazing tool, these four steps of Brain Lock. Um, but if you are struggling with OCD or know somebody who is, please do go seek help. It can become debilitating, and I also know that it is something that a lot of people are ashamed of, and they hide. And it, you know, the more that people are ashamed or hide a behavior, the more that shame kicks in and tells them that they're horrible people or they'll never get over this. And then shame leads to isolation and withdrawal. And then at that point, then the person is not going to go seek treatment. So please find someone in your area that knows what they are doing with regard to OCD. The International OCD Foundation's website, I believe, had a tab at the top that talked about finding a therapist near you. So give that a shot too. Buy the book Brain Lock. And I will try to have a couple of people coming on here in the near future that are going to talk about how to treat OCD, their experiences with it, a couple of professionals who have worked in the field of OCD for a long time. And I know I mentioned scrupulosity, something that I end up working with a lot, which is that OCD of religious thoughts. And we're going to get some people on here to talk about that soon too. But uh, go get help. There is help available. Um, I am grateful for your taking your time. I know your time is valuable and for spending your time with me here on the virtual couch. So until next time, here is the, the lovely, the talented, the virtual couch guest, Aurora Florence, taking us away with It's Wonderful. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the Aside the things that matter most
Strengths and 